He has been a major figure on the off and off off Broadway scene for some three decades, joining the famed Ridiculous Theatrical Company and rising through its ranks to become one of its leading performers in such shows as The Mystery of Irma Vep, Exquisite Torture, and The Artificial Jungle, later emerging as playwright, lyricist, director, and artistic director with the company. He has been seen regionally acting in The Importance of Being Earnest and A Christmas Carol at the McCarter, and he also toured nationally as the stepmother in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. His most recent appearances include Cornberry, The Queen's Governor, Devil Boys from Beyond, and Red Bull Theater's recent production of The Witch of Edmonton. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and 25 years after I descended the stairs to the Sheridan Square Playhouse and first saw him on stage, I am delighted to meet Everett Quinton. Thank you, Howard. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Everett, I have to admit that The Witch of Edmonton had gotten by me in my theatrical education, and with the exception of Tis pity she's a whore. I don't think I knew the first thing and probably still don't know the first thing about Jacobean drama. What drew you to doing that show? Jesse Berger offered me the role. So. <laughs> that simple. <laughs> and I, like, I feel like I'm a member of Red Bull now. So, What struck me was that it's a style of theater that – could very easily and perhaps was at one point sent up by the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Is it easy to play it straight or do you do you have a tendency to want to have fun with it? It calls itself a tragic comedy. So there are moments in it where you can go for broke. Well, on. we should say that you play multiple roles including a husband and wife. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not traditionally how it's done, I assume. No. no. So, so the no. doubling. When Jesse approached you to do the show, was it specifically with the idea that you would do that or was that something that grew out of No, of no. The this was his idea. He, he, I think in studying it, he, I think he knew that the second act needed uh, kind of a jolt in the middle of it. And Another thing that struck me was – the real cohesiveness of the cast, I mean, it's a terrific cast, but finding a consistent tone, a consistent playing level for that kind of period drama struck me as as really remarkable. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering whether there were conversations in order to find that consistency or whether it was just something that evolved as, as the show was rehearsed. Well, Jesse said the other day, he said – he said, you know, the one thing I can do is cast a play. <laughs> and, and he's so right. I, 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 one of the things that struck me from the first rehearsals of this was how proud I was to be in this group of people. What a, and, and to watch everyone grow and to it's, – it's one of the nicest, funnest – finest cast I've ever been in, I think. Well, and with, with people like Andre DeShields and Charlene Woodard and oh. Sam Tutsavis and Chris McCann and Chris Invar. I mean, it's really... And then the kids. Yeah. Um, Adam Green and um, Craig Baldwin and um, oh God, I'm going to leave people out. Miriam Silverman is... She plays... Um, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Not Millicent. If you don't have to call her out by name during the show, um, 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 but she uh, she plays Winifred. 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 Yes, and it's I. 
because I spend a lot of time off stage in the first few performances, I would sit in the back of St. Clement's Church and listen to the play. I couldn't go because people would see me from the sidelines, but I would just sit there and listen. And I was struck by how remarkable Miriam Silverman's voice is, how beautiful it is. And I'm just sitting there in, in awe of these. And, you know, these are the new kids coming up. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about that experience of, as you said, you sort of get on and get off. You have a couple of points where you're sort of in the crowd, mm-hmm. this, not that it's a huge crowd in the show. What do you do with all of the time leading up to what really becomes your moment in the show? Well, now it's settled down. So mm-hmm. I'm finishing finally The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I've been reading for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm going to catch up on my reading. But up to now, it's been tech rehearsals and stuff. So there's been no time to really mm-hmm. relax. And then watching the show grow and and basking in that. I mean, at the rehearsals, we could sneak into the house and watch. So then I would just spend my the rehearsal time watching people. I love watching my colleagues hmm. grow and work. Well, let me ask you how you got into theater because I have to say – Looking up some of your background, you grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yes. Dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. You were in the Army as a radio operator in Thailand? The Air Force. The Air Force. Mm-hmm. And what era were you stationed in Thailand? Vietnam. During Vietnam. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Come out of there, mm-hmm. go to Hunter College on the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. At what point – did theater become an interest? Was it an interest or was that really a result of your meeting Charles Ludlam? As I now, as I look back, it always was hmm. an interest. But it was not till I got – I met Charles Ludlam, which is, you know, it's in a sense God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. It was a – I feel like a real Lana Turner story hmm. here. But see, I was a – queer kid and a frightened queer and didn't, for whatever reason, that my spirit got broke. When I met Charles, I realized that I, there was a place for me well, in I, the theater. I read in the world. some accounts and I always, you know, if this is true, that you would perform for yourself scenes from movies right, in a exactly. mirror playing some of the great women of the screen. Exactly. But yeah. to an audience of one. Yeah, I would be in my, my bathtub with the towels and stuff and carrying on and, and thinking I was nuts, thinking that I was really sick because, you know, I'm the last generation of the self-hating homo. Hmm. I'm the last generation of the uh, children's hour type. So I've got to mm-hmm. ask, what was the army experience? What was being in Vietnam like? Yeah, it's okay. Really? Yeah, it was what it was. Mm-hmm. And then it ended. So at Hunter College, what were you studying? Theater. Okay. So I you was, did – Yes. I was moving in the direction. Mm-hmm. I was – And with the intent of being a performer or were there other interests? Uh, you know, I was so – I was such a bozo in those days yeah. that I, I was just getting by. I was logging along. So one – whatever, whatever. In reading, there seems to be a couple of different accounts of how you met Charles Ludlam. Mm-hmm. Um, will you tell me how you met him? I met him on Christopher Street 
on a cold February night. So this is February, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I met him and what guys do when they meet on Christopher Street, we did. And I had no idea who he was. I, I, and I got his phone number and I lost it. Hmm. And I, I was actually looking for it and I couldn't find it. So, you know, it was what it was. You lose people's phone numbers. That's happens. And then in the summer, after I was walking down Christopher Street again, and there used to be a restaurant called Duff's. And it was right across the street from Ty's and the, the bar. And Charles came out of the restaurant and said to me, he said, you do exist. And we stayed together from that time on. So at the point that you truly met him, as you say, mm-hmm. that, that second meeting, did you know who he was no. that first night? No. Were you aware of – separate from the man that you met, were you aware of who Charles Ludlam was? No. So mm-hmm. all of that – so when, when you met that second time, even though you're studying theater, you didn't know – No. Right. This was the man who had founded because you you met. This was about seventy seven, if I have 70, it right. I met him in seventy five. Seventy five. So the ridiculous had been operating at that point for about eight, eight years. years. Yes. So mm-hmm. so there was already a reputation there, right. but the relationship was personal first. Right. Mm-hmm. Were you done with your studies when you met in earnest? No, I was still studying, and but again, I was a lost soul. I was not doing well in school. I was not able to function. I was not able to focus. And, you know, but I was do, doing school. And then I started to see who Charles was. You'd walk down the street and people would say things to him. And I thought, oh, okay, well, what are we, what's going on here? And then the fame started to become clear to me. And then, you know, and I met other actors in the group and stuff. And then they were rehearsing. I, I say this all the time, but Taboo Tableaus, it was a benefit. Which was company. a series of scenes they, of all prior shows. Right. That was, it was a big night and it was a scene from every play they had done up to that point. And it was at the Evergreen Theater and the company, as usual, was behind in their rent and the Baha'i faith bought the building. Members of the, I guess they worship in a mosque, I guess, or a temple, I don't know. And the deal was that they would forgive all the back rent and let the company stay until they wanted to take possession of the building. And the agreement was once they wanted possession, there was no, if and no argument. The company agreed it was a sweetheart deal. And so while they were still at the Evergreen, it was on 11th Street between Broadway and University, I believe. And it was a lovely theater. It reminded me of the – maybe it was like a New York-style theater because the Van Damme looked like that and the Cherry Lane. And it had that same straight-on, very mm-hmm. long, two rows. It was a center aisle. And I went in that afternoon and I, the first thing I saw was Black Eyed Susan, who was leading actress in our group, doing a scene from Caprice. It was the play that Charles was working on at the time. And Charles adapted this scene from a speech from 120 Days of Sodom by Saad. And I was, I was blown. It was like a, this barrage of filth coming out of this. And Susan, very beautiful, very petite and pretty. And 
could be angelic because right? mm-hmm. and if you know it works, it could be anything. But well, I think that was true of many of the members of the company. Mm-hmm. They were called on to be anything yeah, many exactly, times, exactly. And but that was my first thing watching her rehearse that, and I was like, I mean, whoa, what is this? This is not your, this is not PBS, and this is not. Well, that that raises a question, which is. What was your concept of theater from whatever your dreams had been, whatever your school training was? Mm-hmm. Because at that point, the ridiculous was still probably somewhat transgressive and not as mm-hmm. well known. I mean, I would say to ever call it mainstream, but it became very well known for its style. Mm-hmm. You say you went, wow, was it? The first time you'd been exposed to anything like this? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, I was uh, not a, by any means, a prude or anything. So, and it, I, I took it to it immediately. I, I was, because uh, someone um, described it as theater of anger. I guess even Charles did. I probably hmm. Charles theater of. So I think that I fit into it because at the time I was kind of very angry. Hmm. It's, I mean, I saw, I guess, what would be considered some of the middle year right. work and I saw satire. I saw humor. I saw you know, people taking gentle jab, not, I shouldn't even say gentle, but certainly taking lighter jabs at not even sacred mm-hmm. cows, but, mm-hmm. but at culture, at right. concepts. So, so tell me a little more about anger. Was well, that Nietzsche the said, didn't Nietzsche said, beware the taming influence of your time. Hmm. So, and you see that in the plays as they go along. Hmm. It's like if I ever teach a class on this, I, I use the early plays, the, which I think epitomize it more. Well, can you tell me then about the early plays, you you hadn't seen the work from the first eight years. You saw these scenes. But I, that, you get enough I, in, right. the, in those scenes. You got a sense of what the whole thing was. Hmm. It was such a great um, experience. You got a total sense of what the ridiculous theatrical company was. So hmm. at what point was it Charles saying to you, I want to put you in a show or were you saying – Put me in a show. No, no. I was at – again, now – and this is February because my – the anniversary of my debut is February 10th. Ah. And in um, – I was just telling someone yesterday, on the 10th of February, I'd be an actor for 35 years and I made a – Mazel tov. Thank you. I made a debut 35 years ago in New York. But I was writing a paper – and I had seen the rehearsals. It was a long rehearsal process and the company was moving around. So I had seen the, re- the, seen the play and I knew what it was and I knew the struggles and whatever. So I had to finish this paper for school. So I found myself a little corner of the performing garage where it was then the performing group but then became the Worcester group and we were using their space. And I, I went off into a corner to write the paper. I didn't want to be rude and disrupt the rehearsal. I don't like rehearsals where people read and I, I have to learn to keep my mouth shut because people do it and that's, I have no power. But generally, I tend to not read. I, I like to focus on what's what. 
But I went and found a little corner. I was writing my paper. And then Charles came up to me and said that he had invented this role. And the, the first preview was the next night. And no actor could do it. Would I be willing to step in? No actor could do it as in he couldn't get anybody to they, do it? The, everyone, in the, everyone in the show was accounted for. Oh. No one could double. Mm-hmm. No one could. And so what was your reaction? I said yes. <laughs> so, you didn't have to think about it. Exactly. I didn't have to think about it. I, I never mentioned to him that I wanted to be in a play. Hmm. I, I, I didn't want – I didn't want to go that way. I didn't want to go that route. I didn't hmm. want to – Now, it's a jump back question but in high school, had there been any opportunity for you to perform or is this literally the first no, time no. you're getting when on the stage? No, I was in the Cub Scouts, <laughs> okay. I was in – Rip Van Winkle and I didn't get Rip Van Winkle because it was supposed to be a beatnik. <laughs> I mean, so when the Progressive sun, high school. When the, sun <laughs> is, when the sun is high and the something, something, something. I mean, that's, or, and it was supposed to be a beatnik but I was southern. It came out southern and so she didn't give me the role and she even made fun of my southern accent, the den mother. But she gave me a role as a bowler. But and it was like I guess my first avant-garde thing because I couldn't knock the pins down. She didn't want to disrupt the play. So I was in the back with my little bowling ball and the pins and I would just do – it was like a dance. And I would um, – You pretend so would, you'd mime I would bowling? mime – I had the bowling ball mm-hmm. and I would just bowl. I would run and bowl and, but then I would never let the ball go. And that was my role. And then I also was in my church choir. I went to great uh, St. Francis Xavier grade school and I was in the choir and um, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, the procession. We used to process in every Sunday. And then once we did a show, there used to be this um, home for the aged on 16th Street and 8th Avenue in Brooklyn and we did a show in there and I remembered – getting huge laughs and we were wearing these big hats and I carried on and it was like a huge hat and it was so okay so you you'd at least stood on a stage I had, I've had I guess okay so it wasn't wasn't well, a complete shock but, but I was, it an, was a shock I was terrified but as an adult <laughs> I was <laughs> terrified I mm-hmm. was so unprepared and how much of a part was it it was tiny but but it was with the you know the Trocadero Glugzinia Ballet it was the the mother of the Trocadero de Monte Carlo. Okay. They they took the idea and became made it more um, commercial. Uh-huh. But this was the the, the group that started uh-huh. it all. And it's Caprice and when I met Charles, what he said to me was that he was writing a gay hero. And I, I you probably read that somewhere, but that I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And I, and then later on, he explained it hero in the sense of the journey that the character's taken through the play. Not that he wasn't a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. There was nothing noble about Caprice. But the protagonist certainly right. Both the antagonist and that they, Caprice and his rival, were both gay and both not nice people. And that was the point of the play. What. Charles said that he was presenting gay people 
without a reason for being gay. Hmm. They just were humans in the world and mom and pop didn't drop him on the head. Daddy wasn't mean to him and he, and and that fascinated me. That, But in this place, someone sets up Caprice's boyfriend to go sit in the opera box with Twifford Adamant, who is the rival. And then um, Caprice, Charles played Caprice, Claude Caprice, gets wind of this. So while the ballet is going on, he pulls one of the ballerinas off the stage and comes on. And Charles mm. could do point too. Charles could dance <laughs> on point. Charles could do everything. And so the, I was the little ballerina who got pulled off. Hmm. And, and so now at this point, how long was a run? I mean were you in this show for a couple of weeks, a couple of months? A couple of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, we talked about Mel Gusso. Mel Gusso hated it. He slammed it. <laughs> Mel, who wrote for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, so at this point, you've got this small role. Mm-hmm. Charles was really produced. It seemed he was writing a great deal mm-hmm. in this period. He was he was really coming out with a lot of work. Did he then start to write at all with you in mind and say? I've got – I'm going to write this and, no. and you'll be in it. No. 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 There was a core group of actors that he wrote for. Mm-hmm. Lola Peshlinsky and John Brockmeyer and Bill Vare and Jack Mallory and Susan. Right. They were the group. And then there was a satellite group and George Osterman was one of those people. And that's who we wrote for. Mm-hmm. But the good luck for me was when he adapted – Wagner's ring cycle. Der Ring, Der ring got, got for Blunget. Yeah. Right. And and he got the title from the Yiddish Theater on Second Avenue. There was a play called The Bride Got for Blunget. <laughs> and it's like means all screwed up or and so he called it that. And there were so many characters in it that if you could walk and talk, <laughs> you could get in it. And I had I must say I had no experience and no right to have the role, but I did jockey to get Mima Ninny, it was called, hmm. in the and Charles did give it to me. Well, at this point, is it simply that when he puts you in shows, that was the sum total of your training? I mean Charles no, yes, was a teacher. Yes, exactly. And, God knows. Mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. did teach at universities and you know, was was not just some guy putting on campy shows right. in the village. Right. Um, was there a teaching aspect, a mentor aspect in your work together? Because, of course, when you're not in the theater, you're a couple. Right. So could he teach you? Did Absolutely. He teach you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was not in not formal. It wasn't put down that right. way. Do you, I mean, you weren't taking notes. Right. But I wasn't taking notes. And like I I've never really taken an acting class. So um, I used to beat myself up for that too. And then one day I thought, you're taught by one of the greats here. Hmm. And and he made, when he was directing, he directed like a teacher, hmm. at least with me. One of the things um, that I read, and you just talked about the circles, there was the core group mm-hmm. and then there's if they were concentric circles, the next circle, you came in to that second circle right. at a certain point. But as time went on, 
you were playing increasingly larger roles and be moving into the center. How did that affect the company in terms of let's be honest, the the director, artistic director's partner is suddenly getting bigger and bigger roles? Well, in the late 70s, now I, I don't want to – I – there was kind of a spiritual death in the group. This is what I'm calling it. This is as I see it in people and um, for whatever reason, there were many reasons, everyone had their own reason. But I noticed that and I'm calling it that. And the group – then many people left the group in the late 70s, the very – in 1980, Lola Peschelinski left the group. John Brockmeyer left the group. Bill Vare and Black Eyed Susan stayed. And, and Charles was very brokenhearted by that. Hmm. He was startled by it. He didn't expect it. And you, you have so much vested in it. But what happened, though, is it was a boom for the rest of us. Because hmm. suddenly now the the juicy roles were open. But Charles always said to me that he wouldn't put me in a role unless he thought I was ready for it. I was good. And when we were starting to see that I was good, I, I realized when I first started that I had talent and obviously guts to go on. And then as time went on, I started to develop. Did you feel you were good? Mm-hmm. Or did he tell you you were good? No... Because you I'm, talked earlier about un, you know uncertainty and and you know not fi- having a place when you were younger. Right? Did you really get a sense of yourself and come right. into your own? Yeah, goodness? I mean, I know I'm good. I'm, mm-hmm. I, well, certainly now I was at, but at the time, even in, um, I knew. Yeah, I had a sense that I was good. Okay, I had a sense that I could do this. So, I, mean, I don't want to sound like I don't want to be like a big-headed ego thing because I don't have that. But I knew. But what's interesting about about your story is that by almost sheer luck, right. you happened into the ideal family Some and any true theater company is a family with all of the rifts and all of the problems exactly. and all of the jealousies that occur. Right. I, I, I tell you, I, I stepped in shit. <laughs> <laughs> in the best in possible way. In the best way. possible way, yes. So – the roles are getting larger. Mm-hmm. Um, you are confident and increasingly confident in your skills. Charles is certainly confident in them. Um, what do you th- – was there – you mentioned uh, Dering Garfarblanget. Mm-hmm. Was there – were there other particular roles for you that you felt were were real signature breakthroughs in those first years? Well, at that point, everything was. Everything was. I mean, I found myself... I have to say, in um, this is before Lola left the group, in Utopia Incorporated, it was the most startling thing that ever happened to me on stage. I found myself communicating with a person on stage. And suddenly the... Some kind of wall had dropped and I was – she was looking at me in the eye and it was the it was the intentions of the character. And I'm thinking – I was thinking, oh, Lola, it doesn't matter me here. And, hmm. and then I thought, no, no. This is 
Rosalba, who is mad at Hyacinth. And I, it threw me back and my heart started beating. And it, I, think, I think that's the moment where I really, the, the whatever it is, that actor thing happened for me. It, hmm. was, it was so startling. It was so, it was such an eye-opener. It was such an awakening. Certainly in terms of breakthrough, broader-based fame for the company, it seems like Irma Vep was was to some degree a turning point. Or would you say that there was, was anything prior to that? Oh, well, yeah. The bourgeois was. avant-garde. Got but Gallus was and Gallus, probably okay. the one that was – but – the mystery of Armavep is so um, – it's an anomaly. Well, that's why I was going to ask about mm-hmm. it because it wasn't a company show. You and Charles were the company right. but even though wanted, there were so many roles. But Gallus was supposed to be – Charles wanted to write a two-person thing for he and I and that was supposed to be Gallus. But then it developed into a, a huge cast and because he was, he was going to do something about a maid and a – Star and the Maid, mm-hmm. and then that grew, grew <laughs> right. But that's the play that put me on the map. Mm-hmm. Was Gallus the character of Bruna, the insane opera singer maid? When you talk about being on the map, this is not a company where suddenly I get a sense that casting directors were all coming to say, you know, and and put you in other shows because you stayed right. within the company. It was a recognition for your work within the company that was happening. It wasn't the thing that, you know, suddenly you're taken out of the small off-off-Broadway company and thrust into mainstream works, which... Right. Well, you know, like, I, it is true because Charles was offered at one point to direct some of Saturday Night Live, hmm. and he turned it down because he didn't want to I know. He, later on, he, uh, that would have been very. That would have been very interesting. It would have been. He would have um, become a huge, huge right. star. But it was his baby, and um, you're right. And even today, I find myself um, pegged, pigeonholed by casting people. Well, I want to come back. To I that. guess I either that or I'm just having a run of bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's come back to that when we talk mm-hmm. about your career post ridiculous. Um, Irma Vep was one of the times, and not the only time, certainly. But you were also doing costumes. Right mm-hmm. now, we have not talked about your design skills or experience or anything. Was that by necessity, desire, or it prior experience? It was necessity. I had no experience, mm-hmm. I, and. I didn't get cast in reverse psychology, which, is, which um, you know, it broke my heart and I thought I deserved it. But I was, it was an ego trip. I didn't deserve it. I didn't, had no right to anything but what I had, you know. Mm-hmm. But I at the time thought, and, <laughs> but, and Charles said, well, why don't you costume it? Because we don't have a costume designer and I and I didn't see it as a feather in my cap as a possibility to grow I saw it as a I was oh I took it very hard hmm. <laughs> but you did it oh, I did it and had a nice success with it I, had a, I think I did a beautiful job 
Um, and then, as time went on, I costumed there then for till Charles died. Well, what's certainly extraordinary in Irma Vep, and for those who don't know it, Irma Vep is just for two actors, mm-hmm. but playing multiple roles and mm-hmm. calling at times for the quickest of quick changes, right. almost mm-hmm. almost scary in mm-hmm. terms of the speed that it's required. So you were creating not just costumes, but costumes that could come on and off right. at you know in the blink of an eye, mm-hmm. and that was all self-taught. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it. Well, I have to say, a, a man, a friend of mine, Danny Boyke, who built things for me. We would sit over at coffee for hours and try to solve these things. And Danny was the man who. But every you know, you go to these shops. And a designer has an idea and it's up to the person who runs the shop to give you a solution. Right. So uh, unless the the designer has that skill. Interesting. Burma so, Vep, as I said, certainly, at least for me, was when I first really first saw it, first really came to understand the work of the company. Um it was, by any stretch of the imagination, a commercial success. Right. Um, how long did you do the show for? For two years. We did 331 performances of it because I remember I was filling – I only remember the number because I – we for some grant application, we had to write down <laughs> the numbers of stuff and I was assigned one day to sit and get these numbers from the – and no, it was. Um, it was amazing hmm. and it took me only uh, – 25 years later to actually figure out the play and figure out what it is Hmm. because I thought, why is this that is so accessible? Why is it – why does it fit the mandate Hmm. of an experimental theater company? And then it dawned on me. It became very clear. It's totally abstract. Hmm. It's absolutely abstract and you think it isn't. It's uh, um, a – and when I figured that out, it made it so much easier to direct it. If someone says, but this doesn't make sense, it doesn't have to make sense. Well, you, Ch- said, you said it took you 25 years, but mm-hmm. you directed mm-hmm. a production only about 13 or 14 years later. <laughs> that, so had you not figured it out at that point and it's still later? That In you- 88, I directed one. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I, you, it, there's enough there in your mind mm-hmm. to direct a respectable right. production. And but it, but it, there was the 98 revival. I didn't get that. It, right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's when I got it. Mm-hmm. That's, I just said 25 years okay. is the wrong. But that's when – no, no. I have to even say after that I got it. Hmm. That it, the play is totally abstract. Hmm. Nothing adds up. And it, it's – but Charles used to say that cliche is the armature of the absolute. I know what that means. I couldn't explain it to well, you. Well, I was going to say is part of the reason it hangs together and I'll do the lowbrow version mm-hmm. of what Charles said, which is that because it is so keyed to cultural reference points that at least the audience that most want to see that show share, mm-hmm. they recognize right. the plot because they've seen – or they recognize the plot elements because they've seen them in other works. Right, exactly. They, they have a framework, an armature right. um, that's already in their heads. So you're riffing off of that. Right. And then so and then it's all – but nothing adds up. Two and two does not make even 22. Hmm. So Irma Vep was 84. You did mm-hmm. it for, for two years. 
Um, Artificial Jungle was the next no, one. No, it was Salambo. Oh, I forgot about Salambo came, right, with, came, the, with the cast was, of bodybuilders. Which was another eye-opener because we had gotten such kudos for the Mystery of Irma Vet. And it's nice to have people say nice things about you. And uh, it's – it's um, and then it was frightening when Salambo appeared because Salambo went back to the ribald, raunchy – in a way that I, I don't think Charles had done hmm. really in a long, 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 long time. So what had been – become a more accessible work of the company gave people a false impression right. perhaps. And people were – So and, all the – it wasn't a case of if you love the mystery of Irma Vep, you'll love Salama. Right. And the audience did grow mm-hmm. from um, the mystery of Irma Vep. Mm-hmm. So these people I guess would be startled by – Salambo because it was wild. It was I, I loved it. I I um, that's one of my as a costume designer, I think it's one of my best efforts. Hmm. That, um, then artificial jungle. Is that what, what is that what it was? Was it after that I think because in this period there wasn't because now we that's, have to that, acknowledge that Charles we're in a period Charles passed away in during in, the artificial during jungle. artificial that's jungle. when he found out he was sick so and this is 87 right if I'm mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for you you have lost your life partner you have lost your artistic leader you've lost the teacher mm-hmm. and you are charged by him before he dies with carrying on the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you go about keeping the company together? Were you prepared at all for that? Not at first. Not – but um, I think it, it's a – it could only happen I think because it was such a foolhardy thing. Um, but I did know. Now, I'm not sure. I can't prove this, but it's like a widow thing. You know how often a widow or a widower will take a congressperson's seat mm. or a, if they die, the, the seat can get – is often filled by – Mary partner. Bono took Sonny Bono's exactly. seat. That would be exactly the best example. And that's what I thought. The only way that this is going to happen because one of the members of the group Later on, I found out wanted to be the artistic director, and it made him mad that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I, you should have told me; <laughs> you could have it. But I, I probably wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but I think it wouldn't have worked without the way it fell out. And but as the artistic director, I mean, clearly Charles had theories of theater. He said right. he taught, he wrote. At this point, had you come to either? absorb his aesthetic and then channel it or for obviously a horrible and sad reason, did it give you an opportunity to express artistic impulses that you'd not been able to in a company that had such a major figure at the head of it? Right. Well, I understood enough of his thinking. I can't – I'm 
don't understand the whole like people talk about his manifesto and my eyes just roll i just think people say this and that and this and that and then but i the other day um someone was talking we were talking about being broke and being bemoaning being broke and then in part of his manifesto it's about an actor should never be ashamed of owing the rent Oh, and the landlord, the rent. And it's so that, you know, on those levels, I get it. And, um, but I did not have the smarts or I'm second generation ridiculous. And when I'm, I'm not an innovator in the sense that Lipsinka is or Charles Bush is. I'm second. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, um, but that's not unusual for a company that when the original artistic leader leaves, it's a question of how is it pursued. So, But I look at the fact that your credits as a director, as a lyricist, mm-hmm. as a playwright um, or adapter all are subsequent to Charles right. – Charles's passing. Right. So you, you did ha- – you may not – Think of yourself as the kind of innovator that he was, but clearly you were taking on new roles. Right. And a friend of mine, and God help me, his name has gone out the window, but oh, I can't remember. Oh, Jesus. I can see his face, and he's very big in um, the needle exchange. Um, and God help me, forgive me, his name is gone. But he said to me, the most important thing someone said to me, he said, Ever don't make it a museum. Of Charles's plays, and if you do, it will tank. And the first two plays we did were Medea and um, the Isle of the Hermaphrodites, and then we did um, no, no Medea, Turds in Hell, and then the Isle of the Hermaphrodites. Medea again, Frank Rich slammed it, which I still think it didn't deserve the slamming that it got mm-hmm. or it was too short mm-hmm. I'll say and there was something's wrong with it but I costumed it my most beautiful Larry I, and I got friends friends rallied around and Larry Kornfeld directed the Medea and he directed the Turds in Hell and um, actors came back and, and and but I was intent on not having a core mm-hmm. company I didn't want to have that but then um, we did – Medea ran its course and then the turds in hell. I was a fool and I broke my toe during it and I didn't know then and the business manager didn't know that I was replaceable and we closed it. Hmm. And it was stupid. It was – again, I didn't – today it would be mm-hmm. put on an extra pair of socks and do it. But you know, it was a learning thing and then – I Love the Hermaphrodites was a disaster. There was an unfinished play that then, today I could finish it. Mm-hmm. Today I would know how to doctor it. Then I didn't know how to doctor it and it failed and the designer went away on a vacation, the set designer. The, it was, every, the stars were just not aligned. Hmm. And on the first dress rehearsal, I shit-canned it. You know, that's, and... Um, it was very painful to do that. 
and I remember going to the gym and I was walking and the Riviera, that restaurant on 7th Avenue and 4th Street was being – it was under construction and there was a scaffolding around it. And I remember I was so embarrassed. Like who gave – who cared really? Mm-hmm. But I was – under this scaffolding and I felt protected under the scaffold. And then I went to the gym and I was sitting on this leg thing and I was so wounded. And then the 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 Whitney Houston song about the, the children are our future was on the radio and I started to cry. I was sitting in this gym and just weeping and this song, this very sentimental song. And that's when I thought, oh, Everett, it's going to be all right. Hmm. Just chill. And then I thought – it's better to close this thing and suffer this embarrassment than to open it and be run out of town on a rail. Because mm-hmm. that, and then I had always wanted to do a tale of two cities, and I was like, again, I always say this, but I grew up. We never had any money in my family. We would, and but we had our television, and that was my entertainment, and that's where I, and I was all the the. What is the the movie with what's his face Coleman? The Ronald Coleman film. Ronald it's Coleman about thirty nine, yeah. And Blanche Yerka was the the great American. Blanche Yerka was Madame Defarge, and she's the probably the single biggest influence on my work. <laughs> that that it's this amazing. Um, so I I called Richard Curry, who was the lighting designer and actor in the group, and I said, what do you think of A Tale of Two Cities? He said, well, it's not funny. I said, what do you think of a one-person Tale of Two Cities? He said, that's funny. And I did it, and we had no money. Uh, A patron of ours gave us $5,000, and there were three people who said they could work work on it. They couldn't work for less than $150 a week, and they got that, and we pulled set pieces out of storage because it was the same size ceiling. Right. So all these pieces could be mixed and matched and we put them up, painted it, made a set and uh, and Kate Stafford and Susan Young from um, Women One World Wow Cafe. I asked Kate if she would direct it. I had no money but it said if we made money they would get a fee Mm -hmm. and they came. She came and and directed it beautifully, and then um, I was terrified. And the play was going to open. It would open on January eighth, and I was terrified. And I wanted to walk away from it. I wanted to just run. And that's when I, I feel like you know maybe that's the day I became a man. I guess. <laughs> and I I remember thinking, Everett, you can't run. We're going to do this. If the critics hate it, if it, slam, if it bombs, you can go wherever you want to go or you can go wherever the wind takes you. But you can't run from this. If you do, then it's real kind of moral cowardice. Hmm. And I did it and it was a hit. And um, I maybe stayed at the ball too long but it was the only thing that we had. And then I made another mistake because we – mounted a production of Salome, the Oscar Wilde, and I never let it open. It was stupid. You know, it was a stupid thing to do. Why? I don't know. I, I just couldn't assess it. I couldn't. But then when I look back on it, it was a, a fantastic hmm. production. And Mark Beard, who was a set designer for years, 
built this beautiful set that fit right over the Tale of Two Cities set because we mm-hmm. were doing the two of them. Ah. And the, his challenge was to make a half-hour turnaround. Mm-hmm. And he did it. And it was magnificent. And it was such a beautiful production. And mm-hmm. but it's my big regret that we didn't open that. But well, let me ask you: you say that it shouldn't be. The goal was not to have the ridiculous become a museum theater. You were right. not going to become the doily cart company trooping out all of Charles's plays to right. be done again and again right. as Charles would have wanted them to be right. done. You did, however, return to some of his plays. Well, the, the and, idea was we would do one a year. And in many cases, you took on the roles he had played. Is that true? Camille. Okay. That, that was just an ego trip. I, mm-hmm. I figured I could do it and no one would stop me. And Do you think it was a success, you stepping into that role? Camille? Yeah. Oh, I think so. I, although we – because you're you we, have different we, energies as performers. Well, we are totally different actors, right? Uh, and we would have had a good run of it, but because uh, we copped the daily in the Times, mm-hmm. I forget who it was. We copped the daily, and then that awful marks from Washington when he <laughs> came up. Then he killed us in the Sunday. Hmm. That was sad. That was a sad thing. I don't know why the Times did that. I don't know why the Times needed to do that. I think they've stopped it now hmm. where you get the daily. It's yours. You get to keep it. And then one guy gave it a rave mm-hmm. and then Marx took it away. Mm-hmm. And that was I, – I, that made me very sad. But today, I know I loved it. I, I'm a different actor than Charles. Yeah. Way different. But I would go back to when I first started – George Osterman, who we're going to talk about in, in a minute, but because um, he started writing for me, right? Um, he left the group earlier because he was in that second ring mm-hmm. and was not fulfilling. Couldn't break him. into the center right. ring, and it was he wasn't being fulfilled. But he had all these dreams, so he went and became his own playwright hmm. and wrote these wonderful plays. And but. By that point, I had done The Ring and I didn't have to audition anymore. And hmm. Charles knew what I was capable of, the, the possibilities, right. even though I was, a, again, still not um, cooking on all burners. But so I got to replace George as Nichette Fondue in Camille for a tour of um, Toronto. Hmm. And – and that in the rehearsal of that is where, again, it was another thing when I was sitting in the tea scene. I don't know if you saw our play, but there's a tea scene with Nichette and Marguerite and the maid. And it's a very funny scene. And where Camille throws the strawberry up and catches it. And I was sitting there in the rehearsal and watching Charles act. And it came into my head. I said, this guy could leave you in the dust. Hmm. If you're not careful, hmm. and I, it was, and that's when now you have a theory about acting now from that. So this is almost thirty-five years ago. That acting in the theater is like a horse race. It's like a, it's competitive in the way that a horse race is competitive. The horses aren't judging each other. 
Mm-hmm. Horses are just being egged on to run. There's no – and that's when I thought – that's when my theory of the acting and performing in a play is a horse race and you're beating each other to the finish line. Well, you sustained the company as artistic director for 10 years mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and the company finally ceased to be right. in 97. Right. So here you are. You had first – gotten together well you said 75 with charles was when Mm -hmm. you met you've had 22 years with charles ludlam with the ridiculous theatrical company all of your work had Mm -hmm. been within that family and that structure right what was it to suddenly be a freelance actor it was horrifying it was it was terrifying and it was happened right at the time of my Around 45 when I guess the midlife crisis hits anyway. We all have them at different times. But But this is – oh, man. It was – my whole identity was tied up in this. Hmm. And then um, it was challenging. So you referred to this earlier. Did you have to go – and make the rounds of casting directors. Right. Were you suddenly auditioning, right, auditioning in a way you'd never been prepared for? Because well, no, no, no. Because I had gone after movies. Uh-huh. While I while we were in the, I, okay. I could do a couple of. I did a couple of movies, mm-hmm. and I would get sent out for stuff that would shoot in the city, mm-hmm. and I couldn't go away. I mean, what were we thinking? In the, I guess it's it's loyalty is a good thing, mm-hmm. and so. In looking at, at some of what you did, you know, it's interesting because there are shows that you've done that seem like they play on the heritage of of the ridiculous, that they're born of that style. And then, of course, there are others that you – I mean anybody who says, oh, he, he did Importance of Being Earnest and Noah mm-hmm. Carter. Well, of mm-hmm. course, he must have done Lady Bracknell and Drag and of course you didn't. You were no, playing Reverend Chasuble. yes. Um, was it a new way that that you had to present yourself so that people would consider you beyond the style of the ridiculous? Well, I, I feel trapped by it mm-hmm. now. I feel as though I'm pegged by it. And I don't want to um, – the danger for me is to negate or to poo-poo what I did and because um, I'm – I'm not rich and famous. I want to be rich and famous. I, it's still – I'd be the oldest living overnight success. But I don't want to poo-poo that. I don't mm-hmm. – I, I want to – Well, it's an extraordinary legacy. Exactly. And I want to love it and – but, you know, I here I was, the big cheese and now I'm not. Mm-hmm. And that's – that was the most painful ego thing. And mm-hmm. it, it – um, well, I did my first job out was I got um, Jacob Marley at the McCarter. Right. And um, and then Patrick Lillis, who directed it, um, he said to me, he said, but you're not in the union. I said, no, I'm hoping to get a contract so I can get in the union. So you'd not been – there was no equity contract right, no, this whole time. They, they wanted us. They said they would make us deals. But once you're in that union – the deal is their deal after the first year. Right. You know, they might tell you what they, they could do for you. But And I appreciate it. I love being in the union. I'm, 
I've always been a union person. It was not a when I was a kid, I was in unions. But um, but gosh, I have to say, doing Christmas Carol, which has at any theater more than its share of student matinees, mm-hmm. to suddenly be performing for children, to suddenly be in an absolute. Warhorse crowd pleaser, but again, Charles did the the Enchanted Pig, mm-hmm. which was meant for children. He did his Christmas Carol, which was um, anyone could come to it. Like we had a lady, Dofi Haas, who was a uh, angel of ours, mm-hmm. but she was so straight laced <laughs> that she wouldn't come to see the nasty plays. She would she could come to see. Christmas Carol and Camille, but she couldn't come to see any of the other nasty things. And she once gave money to the Pennsylvania Ballet and they did Apollo and the guy was in little briefs and she pulled all the money. Hmm. So, you know. Okay. So so it wasn't completely jarring. No, no. Um, no, no. You had done uh, A Midsummer's Night Dream at, uh, at The Ridiculous. But then you had opportunities to do other Shakespeare's. Um, well, my second job out of The Ridiculous was um, – Was that Mary Wives of Mary Windsor? Mary Wives of Windsor. Mm-hmm. At the and Shakespeare at the Theater Shakespeare down in D.C. Right. Very prestigious company. Mm-hmm. Um, later uh, did Midsummer again, in this case at Hartford. I did it before that at oh. the Hampton Shakespeare. Oh, I didn't have that one. Uh, Jesse okay. Berger directed that. Got it. And that's – one day, Jesse offered me Bottom because I had played it and then I did it the second time at the Hamptons. Hmm. So there were opportunities to work in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, as I mm-hmm. talked about when Charles sadly passed, it gave you an opportunity for growth. Yes, you have to sell yourself now and I don't mean that as anything more than to get the gigs. Mm-hmm. Um but there's a there's a new breadth of experience, right. different directors, different scripts, right. and since you were not trained, is this is this exciting for you now to, mm-hmm. to over the past ten twelve years to do that? Right, exactly. I'm, hmm. I'm have, it's. I wish I had more. I wish I had more plays to be in, and there's a lot of downtime. But all actors have it. Yeah. It's, what was it like going out and doing Cinderella? Oh, it was, it was like all oh, home week. I got lucky on that because um, I auditioned and at the, the the dance callback, I mean, I can't dance. But, <laughs> and, but I was the no, – there was another man in there. He was going after one of the stepdaughters hmm. and then he didn't make the one cut and then it was me and all these women in the – the thing and um, and there was one woman said she needed the job and I, I felt that that was kind of a manipulation. It was an attempt, and I thought, "Sweet, I need the job too." <laughs> so, and I do think I've come to think that there are certain women's roles that are fair game hmm. for men or women, and I don't. There are certain roles I don't think are that I wouldn't go after, but. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the women's roles that you you think are fair game? Well, last summer I played um, Madame Rose Petal in Oh Dad Poor Dad, mm-hmm. which I think Arthur Copet play. I think that's a fair game. I think that's a mm-hmm. fabulous play, and I tore it up in that. So I I think that's a fair game. I, I couldn't say off the bat what 
mm-hmm. is fair game. But I would say any of the Shakespeare stuff is fair game. The grand things like Tamara and <laughs> Lady <laughs> M are fair game. Mm-hmm. But the certain others like Desdemona, I bump to all the oldest, first Desdemona to die of old age <laughs> would be me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think there are some grand ladies of the stage back probably in the 30s and 40s who mm-hmm. were still playing those roles. No, I was just talking to a friend age. of mine today. There was some French actress. Well, that's what we used to talk about in The Ridiculous, all these old. But some French actress, she was 90 years old playing Juliet. <laughs> And the audience started to heckle her when she came on the stage. And she walked down to the apron and she said, Je suis mademoiselle, whatever her name was. And she shut them up and went and blew their <laughs> socks off as Juliet. So. Well, there are many more roles for you to play. And Everett Quinton, thank you uh, for joining us today. And thank you for giving me some wonderful times to oh, the theater. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.